Alright, we are back and have a lot of ground to cover because there's so many topics we just don't get to. We haven't talked about travel in quite a while, and we won't today either. But I'm longing to go somewhere and longing to tell you about it. Looking at a uh, travel and leisure section from, I guess it's the week, talking about the Faroe Islands. Out in the North Atlantic, kind of midway between uh, Iceland, Scotland, and Norway. Looks like a pretty place, but I was struck by the statistic. The natives measure the annual sunshine not in days, but hours. <laughs> Torshavn, the largest town in all the Faroes, sees 840 hours of sun a year. The average day is 12 hours. That's about 70 days a year. When in Norway and Iceland uh, summer before last, I noticed that my lonely planet did have a little section on the islands. But just to show you how far we go for you, dear listener, I want you to know that I read up on the Faroe Islands in The Awake. Yes, along with the Watchtower, these publications of the Jehovah's Witnesses Church had a nice little section on the islands. Yes, I was reading in the local coffee shop. I'd already read the copy of the K-Deviations. But I learned from The Awake that a tunnel is constructed recently in the Faroes, takes traffic 500 feet below the sea, and connects two of the larger islands. They made a 3.8-mile-long tunnel for a population of about 40,000 people. Good for them. I also learned that the archipelago has about 100 Jehovah's Witnesses. If you look at it on the good side, that means they've got about 47,900 non-Jehovah's Witnesses. And if any of you listeners are Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm not trying to go out of my way to be offensive. But you know, you guys have promised me the end of the world now for about 50 straight years. And you keep moving the date back. Not that I'm complaining, mind you. But three nights ago, as I was, I was out in my front yard trimming the trees, a, a van pulled up and disgorged an army of teenagers which ran about leafleting the neighborhood. Yes, apparently one of our local Christian churches has a seminar based on Bible prophecy that explains the prophecies of Daniel and the book of Revelations and allows you then to apply those principles to give you more strength and energy. Yeah, apparently Harold Camping's group down in Oakland, uh, their radio ministry is calling for the end of the world next year. So if any of you believe this, or believe that the Mayan calendar indicates the world's going to end in 2012, here's my standing offer. Deed me your house. I'll give you cash up front. You won't be needing your home when the rapture comes and you go straight to heaven. So really, it's kind of win-win. And anyway, speaking of the end of the world... There's some bad news from space. Apparently, Vadim Bobolyev of the Polkovo Observatory in St. Petersburg, Russia, has modeled the paths of some neighboring stars using data from the European Space Agency's Hipparchos satellite, bolstered with some ground-based measurements of the speed of stars. He found four previously unidentified stars that will pass within about 10 light-years of the Earth, They'll tug on the Oort cloud of comets, uh, orbiting out about a light year or so away. Could cause big trouble. Apparently the biggest threat comes from a star Gliese 710, an orange dwarf about 63 light years away, but barreling at us at 14 kilometers a second. The mathematics show that uh, this star has an 87% chance of passing through our Oort cloud and unleashing a hail of comets, which will probably crash into the inner solar system. Of course, their math is apparently a little more reassuring. They think that the comets would uh, probably come down at the rate of one Earth-crosser per year. 
And you probably don't need to mark this one on your calendar. This is not set to happen for about another 1.5 million years. But scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory said that uh, this event could really significantly disturb the orbit of Neptune. And speaking of Neptune, which is a segue we seldom get to utter on this show, recent study at Arizona State University suggests that um, the planet Neptune may have devoured an Earth-sized planet not so long ago. Actually, the article wasn't clear on the timing, so I'm not either. But if you recall back in 1989 when the Voyager 2 spacecraft whipped past Neptune, it took some wonderful close-up shots of its large moon, Triton, whose surface texture looked exactly like a large cantaloupe. Triton's a big moon, almost as big as our moon, larger than Pluto. But the weird thing about it, unlike all other large moons in the solar system, it moves opposite to the direction of the planet's rotation, which means that instead of spiraling out like our moon does and other moons tend to do, this one is spiraling in. Thanks to tidal pull, it's going to crash into Neptune and perhaps as early as 100,000 years from now, which is, of course, another red-letter day for your calendar. But to the new theory is that Triton was probably once orbiting this Earth-like planet, and when it crashed into Neptune, that's how Neptune captured Triton going the wrong way. It's more math than I know, but it's interesting stuff. More interesting stuff from the field of archaeology, or I guess more properly physical anthropology. From a cave in the Altai Mountains of southern Siberia, where yours truly watched uh, that eclipse back in uh, 2008... Scientists found a finger bone, and when they applied modern technology for a DNA analysis to it, they discovered that it was not a human being or a Neanderthal, but was something else. What uh, the something else species of humans look like uh, is hard to reconstruct, since the only bone they have is the tip of the pinky. Of course, given the fact that all this data is based on 30 milligrams drilled out of the sample and based on comparing mitochondrial DNA, I wonder if this one's going to hold up. We'll see. And some other science that we hope is right is as follows. Apparently, for the first time on record, the worldwide rate of deforestation apparently has declined. This is according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization indicates that the reforestation efforts around the world may actually be getting ahead of deforestation. I'm a little skeptical, but I hope it's right, and I hope it continues for a long time. All right, we said at the top of the show we talked a little bit about lawyers or our legal system, and we need to do that. We need to do a couple of obituaries. So let's start with an obituary of 1980 kidnap victim Timothy White. Mr. White apparently passed away at the age of 35 from a pulmonary embolism. He had had a career as a Los Angeles County Deputy Sheriff. Timothy White became a national figure in 1980 when he was kidnapped by child molester Kenneth Parnell as he walked home from his Ukiah school. Two weeks later, fellow kidnapped victim Stephen Stainer fled with the boy and hitchhiked to safety. The 14-year-old Stainer had been held captive and sexually abused for years by Parnell. Said White in 2004, he didn't want what happened to him to happen to me. Stephen Stainer returned to his family in Merced after living with uh, Parnell for seven years. He died in a motorcycle crash in 1989. Kenneth Parnell died at age 76 in 2008 while serving a life term for trying to buy a four-year-old boy for $500 while he lived in Berkeley. Here's the part that struck me the most about this whole article. Parnell spent five years in prison in the 1980s for abducting Stainer 
and white. That's right. He kidnapped a seven-year-old and held him as a sexual captive for seven years and then served five. Kidnapped another five-year-old who's, who was saved by the then 14-year-old boy and only got put away for good after he tried to purchase a four-year-old. So I'm a little unsympathetic when I read in the paper regarding the J.C. Dugard case that uh, Philip Garrido's attorney's filing papers saying that he's got serious mental illness. He's been hearing the voices of angels for years. You know this Garrido case? I mean, this is dragging on longer than the kidnapping of J.C. Dugard. The attorney for the wife's been fired. The attorney for uh, Garrido's been fired. They're talking about book deals they're going to make. They're going back and forth. They're filing papers. I mean, we know the wheels of justice turn slowly, but this is amazingly slowly. And unfortunately in America, we allow, we allow psychiatrists to go into the courtroom and spew some of their nonsense regarding the evaluation of these criminals to juries which think they're experts and know what they're talking about. And I'm here to tell you, they don't. The actual statistics, if you care to look them up, for how accurately psychiatrists in the criminal justice system can gauge whether a criminal will or will not uh, become a recidivist, well, the stats show that they're wrong two-thirds of the time. So yeah, when I read also in the Sacramento Bee article by Andy Ferrio about how a psychiatrist testified that Aaron Norman Dunn was quote-unquote paranoid, delusional, and even nuts the night four years ago that his methamphetamine-laced shooting rampage killed two men in Elk Grove. We need in this country to have a pleading of guilty but insane, or perhaps guilty but temporarily insane, or guilty and drug-deranged. But the key pleading needs to be guilty, comma, but. The not guilty by reason of insanity should come into play like it originally was in the 1840s with the McNaughton case when someone is clearly out of their mind and, you know, stabs you because they thought you were the devil. Not was PO'd because he caught his wife with the pool boy then decided to shoot the both of them on the spot. You shouldn't be allowed to enter in a temporary insanity plea in that case. And other legal matters, it appears that the city of Sacramento is moving to close or ban the cannabis operations in the county. Like Nick Miller's comments in the Sacramento News and Review on this, said, Last week, city officials proposed a cannabis club ordinance that would limit the number of marijuana dispensaries in Sacramento from 60 to 12. So how did officials come up with a dozen as the cap? We randomly picked 12. That's the reality, explained Michelle Hepner, project manager charged with crafting the ordinance. And you wonder, ladies and gentlemen, why sometimes people don't respect the law. All right, I want to talk about Supreme Court justices, but I've only got about four minutes left, so let's do instead two obituaries. All right, we have two deaths to talk about, one of a bad guy and one of a good. The bad guy was South African Eugene Ter Blanche in 1973s. Eugene Terblosch founded a group called the Afrikaner Resistance Movement, better known by its Afrikaner initials, AWB. He adopted a flag that looked remarkably like a swastika, although he insisted the design was of three sevens interlinked, representing a Christian riposte to 666, the number of the beast. He gained national attention in 1979 when he burst in upon a disrespectful history professor at the University of South Africa, who suggested that the defeat of a large Zulu army at the Battle of Blood River in 1838, which some say had to do with the fact that the white men had guns while the Zulus had spears, was an act of God because he favored the Afrikaners. 
when the professor suggested the day of the covenant uh, was not because God was necessarily rooting for the tribe that created apartheid, Terre Blanche burst in, poured hot tar on him, and then decorated him with feathers. Over the years, some of his supporters set off bombs, and they were notorious for entering black homelands and shooting the place up. But uh, after South Africa moved to eliminate apartheid, the police started shooting back. Noted the economist, Terre Blanche did some good. By making his cause look ridiculous, he weakened it. He apparently was beaten to death last week, allegedly by two black farm workers. The murder has sparked fears of renewed racial violence in South Africa, but it turns out the motive was apparently personal. Unpaid wages, and according to the magazine, one imagines a less than agreeable management style. And last item in the show, we want to note the passing of Stuart Udall. He was Secretary of the Interior under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson and is best remembered for vastly expanding America's network of national parks. The Department of the Interior added nearly 4 million acres of public land and created four major national parks on his watch. Stuart Udall was the brother of 15-time Congressman Mo Udall of Arizona. Prior to being Secretary of the Interior, was in Congress himself. Stuart Udall was an active outdoorsman until the end of his life. He summed up his environmental ethic while hiking in the Grand Canyons when he was in his mid-70s. He said, I guess Teddy Roosevelt, who slept out in the snow up on the South Rim nearly 100 years ago, said it right for all time. There it is. Magnificent. Man cannot improve upon it. Leave it alone. That's it for the show. We'll see you next week on The Pledge Drive, where we're counting, dear listener, upon your support. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening, of course, to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. And next time, folks, please bring your checkbook. (laughs) 